From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. January 14th, 1963, George Wallace, the new governor of Alabama, said this in his inauguration address. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Well, you know, it's interesting to me about Wallace, that Wallace was a very smart guy. And he, early on, he realized that integration was going to come. He knew it. But he thought, if I take this issue and fight this issue, I can use it to politically advance. He could have become the de Klerk of the South, doing, doing what de Klerk and Nelson, Nelson Mandela working together in the apartheid in South Africa. He chose not to do that. He cynically took this issue. And I think Donald Trump has done the same thing with the issue of uh, the 11 million uh, undocumented immigrants, throwing them out and, uh, and not allowing Muslims to come in this country. I think he knows he's not going to do that if he became president. That was, that was a way, way to provoke people and to get voters. That was Lawrence Lamer, author of The Lynching, the epic courtroom battle that brought down the Klan. On a Friday night in March 1981, Henry Hayes and James Knowles scoured the streets of Mobile, Alabama in their car, hunting for a black man. The young men were members of Claver 900 of the United Clans of America. They were seeking to retaliate after a largely black jury could not reach a verdict in a trial involving a black man accused of the murder of a white man. The two Klansmen found 19-year-old Michael Donald walking home alone. Hayes and Knowles abducted him, beat him, cut his throat, and left his body hanging from a tree branch in a racially mixed residential neighborhood. Arrested, charged, and convicted, Hayes was sentenced to death the first time in more than half a century that the state of Alabama sentenced a white man to death for killing a black man. On behalf of Michael's grieving mother, Morris Dees, the legendary civil rights lawyer and co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, filed a civil suit against the members of the local Klan unit involved and the UKA, the largest Klan organization. Charging them with conspiracy, Dees put the Klan on trial, resulting in a verdict that would level a deadly blow to its organization. My guest, Lawrence Lamer, has written about this event, uncovered new information, including the climate of hate created by former Alabama Governor George Wallace that led to this lynching. Lawrence Lamer is a New York Times bestselling author of over a dozen books, including The Kennedy Women and The Price of Justice. He's with me via Skype from Washington, D.C. to discuss his latest book, the lynching, the epic courtroom battle that brought down the Klan. Welcome, Mr. Lamer, to Progressive Spirit. Thanks for having me. Well, how did you learn uh, about this murder and this trial and decide to write about it? Well, I had written a book about these two lawyers in Pittsburgh and their fight against Don Blankenship, the CEO of Massey Energy, who people think thanks in part of my book was uh, convicted and is going to spend a year in prison. And when I finished that book, I sent it to Morris Dees, the co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, seeking a blurb. He read the book and liked it, gave me a terrific blurb, and said, I've had this story that's been sitting there forever, and I've never found anybody the right to write it. If you want to write it, I'll give you a carte blanche. You can, we'll give you every, all the documents, and you can do, do it just the way you want to do it. And he kept his word, I'll tell you. 
So set us up with this story. Uh, let's uh, start with this uh, murder itself. The year is 1981, Mobile, Alabama. What happened? Well, on a March, on Saturday morning in March of that year, uh, Dawn, when Dawn arrived, there was this black man hanging from a tree in Herndon Avenue in downtown Mobile. The black people in the neighborhood arrived on the, in, the, in the town on, the, on that street. They started crying. They, they got it down their knees and, and beat their fists against the ground. I mean, they knew what lynching was. From 1870 to 1955, there was an average of one racial, racial uh, murder lynching a, a week in the, in the South. The last one had been in 1955. And here, to them, it was revived. They had no, they had no doubt but that it was a, a lynching. The police didn't know what to believe, and the Mobile establishment wanted to, did not want a lynching to have occurred in their city. And so, three young Cajuns—they were probably drug dealers—were arrested for the crime. They, they could have been sentenced to life imprisonment. They could have been executed for a crime they didn't commit. So Mobile's reputation would stay what it, what it was. But they were the grand jury that had a lot of guts uh, refused to indict these three young men, and and the Justice Department decided to come down and look at the case. Well, the initial investigators, uh, including the FBI, seemed to have botched it. Uh, they, they couldn't, uh, didn't. It seems that they didn't even try finding an evidence box later. Uh, you know, a shirt with blood on it. Uh, so they seemed to go with every possible connection except the obvious one, the Klan. Uh, right. And you think about it, that morning across, there, there were Klansmen living in that street, including uh, Bernie Hayes, the number, the number two Klan official in the state, lived right across, he lived right across the street. His son lived there. Uh, a, uh, Michael Figures, a, a black state senator and a lawyer, arrived that morning. He started taking pictures. He turned to take a picture across the street, and he took a picture of Benny Hayes, the Klan leader. His son... His son uh, Henry Hayes, a Klansman, and, and James Tiger knows a 17-year-old Klansman and the top young Klansman in the state. And those two uh, young people with him were the ones actually responsible, and they had their picture right there. They, they were, but, the, but the, the authorities didn't want to, didn't want to find that out. And they didn't want to know, as you said, because uh, of the reputation. Of, of the city. And you know, the, a lot of people talk about states' rights. They want to protect states' rights, states' rights. Well, in this case, what was states' rights but a way not to have justice? And so the federal government, in the, in the guise of the, uh, the, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, came down. Barry Kowalski, a young lawyer, a newly hired lawyer there, came down and started in investigating it with Thomas Figures who was an assistant U.S. attorney there who was, was, was black, and his brother was the state senator who was there that morning. And they, with the help of James Bobman, an FBI uh, agent, they, they, they did depositions. They had a grand jury. They kept running these people up in front of the grand jury, some of them two or three times, getting them to talk. And then finally, and finally, Tiger Knowles confessed and told what had happened. And he confessed so that, so, so that he would get a, the, the feds would indict him, and he would not be face execution for his crime. But his friend, his close friend Henry Hayes, did go to, go on trial in the in the state and in the city, and was convicted and sentenced to die. 
If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is Lawrence Lamer, author of The Lynching, the epic courtroom battle that brought down the Klan. Uh, the lynching of, uh, at that time, about a 20-year-old man, Michael Donald. Um, as I read that story, he was born in the same year I was born, not this long ago. It doesn't seem to me that this event happened. Um, the, the lynching uh, the lynching was, was um, not much of a lynching, in a sense. He was just kind of tied up there afterward. No, no. They took they, they, what they did is Michael Don, who was 19 years old, was uh, he was home. He lived, lived with his mother, who had nine children. He was the youngest, and his aunt needed needed cigarettes. So at about 11 o'clock, his aunt gave him a dollar. He he put the dollar in his billfold. That's all he had. Put it in the billfold and went out to get her cigarettes. And when he was out there, uh, earlier in the week, the clan had had a Claverin meeting. And at that time, there'd been a, uh, a bank robbery in Birmingham, Alabama, and after a black bank robbery. He came out, and, to, and when he was escaping, he shot and killed a white police officer. Well, you can imagine what a controversial uh, matter that was in Birmingham. So the trial was brought down to Mobile. And in the Klan meeting that day, that evening, uh, they said that if, and, and the jury was largely black, and, and, and the Klan that in that meeting, they said that if there's a hung jury or, free, or this guy gets away, we're going to find a black man, and in retaliation, we're going to kill a black man. Well, that evening, that Friday evening, the jury came back, and it was indeed a hung jury, although eventually he was convicted of murder. But in any, any event, so these two young Klansmen went out looking for somebody to murder. They had a gun, and they pulled out the gun, and they ordered, ordered Michael Donnelly to get in the car, they drove way out in the wilderness, way, way, out, way, way away from Mobile. They took him out, and he tried. To, he, he knew what, what was coming. He knew what they were going to do, and he started to fight back. And they bludgeoned him. They, they, they beat him to death, and then they slit his throat. And they put the car, they put the body in the trunk of the car, and drove him back to Mobile. Now, why didn't they leave him in the, in the forest? Why didn't they throw him in the ocean? Because they were trying to make him a symbol. That was the whole idea. They had to show. They had to. They had to intimidate black people, and the only way to do it was to hang him from a tree, as if he'd been lynched to death. And that's what they did. And then other Klansmen went, and they and they had a fire, a fiery cross outside the courthouse, to, to, again the symbol of the Klan, to show the Klan, Klan was still alive and well. And of course, uh, as you've mentioned previously, from 1877 to 1950, nearly 4,000 lynchings of African Americans. Uh, it's an aspect of American history that white Americans don't even seem to know. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that history of terrorism and how this lynching of Michael it was it was similar and in a sense different? Well, okay, the lynching it was a brilliant psychological way to hold black people down. Imagine you're you're a black mother. And you've got this. You've got the, your your little boy. And how are you going to how are you going to bring him up? Are you going to bring him up to be bold and tall and to walk strong? To walk strong, or are you going to bring him up when he sees a white man to get off the sidewalk and duff his hat? If you want him to live, you're probably going to do the latter. Now, of the of these lynchings, a lot of these people, there, there wasn't even an accusation of a crime. They were just pulled off the street and killed. The, the, and this was a public event. There, there was a lynching in Texas in the, in the 1890s. There were 14,000 people there to watch it. Uh, these were events that they were like church socials. The whole families came out to see these black, black men and occasionally black women lynched, hung, 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 hanged. Just a terrible thing, but intimidating. And, and, and a lot of it came from a fear of black sexuality. 
That's, that's another thing that's never talked about. But 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 uh, at the time of the Civil War, what did what did the black slave the slave owners do? They went back to the slave back to the slave quarters and they had sex with the slaves. And they impregnated these women. So there was a large mixed blood race at the time of the Civil War. Afterwards, they, they, there was this pronounced fear of black men raping white women. There was a great rarity of that happening. In the early years of the 20th century, Ida Wells, who was a young black journalist in Memphis, Tennessee, there had been six lynchings in, in a couple of months for black men for raping white women. She wrote an article for the Memphis paper saying, we all know that's not true. We all know that's not true. We all know that uh, if, if the truth were told about what they, they, these white women and their desires, uh, there would be a very different look at this situation. Well, he's basic, basically was accusing white women of wanting to sleep with black men. Uh, the Memphis establishment was infuriated. The local paper said that whoever wrote this should be castrated. Well, they found out as a woman and they couldn't do that. But they burned down the newspaper and she left and she became a leading journalist. That, that's the kind of quality of life. That's the fear there was in the South. And as a northerner going down to do this and... Uh, you know, to me, just, just just to learn this really surprised me. You know, I, I got to just say one thing. I mean, yeah. do, do, and I, I, I was a student at the University of Oregon, and uh, I was a graduate student in 1966 to 68. And I was studying international affairs, and I was bored to death. So I took a course in magazine writing, and I talked my way on George Wallace's plane he came north the first time to campaign for president. And I spent four or five days with him. And I learned from, I wrote the first article I ever wrote at that time. And that, that's how I became a journalist. Now, in this book, George Wallace is, is, a, is a key character in this book. And at, at the end of his, near the end of his political career, one of his aides was talking to him. And, and, and Wallace said, I'm afraid I'm going to hell. And the aide said, well, Governor, you're not going to go to hell. You're, you're a born-again Christian. You're going to heaven. And, and Governor Wallace said, no, you know, when in World War II, I was bomber. I was a bomber and I bombed these fire bombs over Tokyo. I'm not worried about that. But I said these things that killed people. I said these words that killed people. And for that reason, I think I'm going to hell. I mean, words, words hurt. Words kill. And George Wallace provoked a lot of these activities. He worked with the Klan. The Klan did his dirty work. And he was responsible, too. Yeah, he was, uh, as you write about him, he was uh, connected uh, with Robert Shelton, of the, the, the uh, leader oh. of the Klan. Yeah, Robert Shelton was the, the imperial wizard of the United Clans of America. That's the biggest Klan group in America then. And there was two of the Klansmen of that group who, who did the lynching. And again, but, but Shelton always stood back. I mean, he would never use the word kill. You know, he'd just say, well, guys, go out and do what you have to do. And he, always, and he was there during the... Uh, the Freedom Rides, when people were bludgeoned half to death, Freedom Rides were, were bludgeoned half to get death in Birmingham in 61. And he was there in his Cadillac, standing back watching the, what, what he had set, set forth for people to do. But he never got, he never got caught. And, of course, that's the, the story here, is that uh, Morris Dees, the civil rights lawyer, uh, the hero, really, of this book, puts him on trial. Tell us a little bit about Morris Dees. What, what uh, kind of person is he, and what did it take for him to succeed with this case? Well, Morris was the son of a tenant farmer outside of Montgomery. He was brought up, he had black friends, but he was brought up as a segregationist. And he'll tell you, yeah, I was brought up as a segregationist, so, so is everybody. That's what we all were. 
1958, when he was a uh, student at the University of Alabama, he took a semester off to be George Wallace's uh, student campaign manager for the state. Three years later, as a young lawyer, he represented the leader of the Klan in, in Montgomery, who bludgeoned uh, Freedom Live writers. Now, now Morris says, I didn't know that he was a Klansman, but he defended him. But he slowly began to evolve. He slowly, slowly began to say, this segregation is wrong. I can't stand for, stand for this. And, and when he began to stand up in that community, he was totally ostracized. I mean, he, was, he, he, was, he, he got in deep trouble because he spoke up. His, his, uh, you know, his mother was warned about what her son is doing. And he made a fortune in, uh, in the book publishing. And when he did that, he decided, I'm, I'm going to start a, a, a civil rights law firm. And he did in 1971 with about five lawyers, five very smart kind of lawyers, mainly from the North, came down. And uh, he got in a lot of trouble. The, the Southern Poverty Law Center was firebombed. There were, there were attempts on Morris Dees' life. But he, but he stood up, and he was in that, that courtroom in 1983 when Henry Hayes was on trial for his life. And he said, thought that day, he said, you know, these two guys, they did the murder, but they were ordered. They did this as part of this system. And, I, and if we're going to have true justice, we have to bring down the system, this murderous, vicious, hateful system. And so that's when he decided to sue the Klan. Now, this was, it was a new legal theory. Nobody had ever been able to do this before. And the five lawyers at the Southern Poverty Law Center, they left. They wanted no part of this. They didn't like the, the, the feeling of danger and, and living in this armed camp. They wanted to do the civil rights work in a different way. So they left, and he went on to, 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 to do the civil suit against the Klan. And, of course, the subtitle of your book is uh, The Epic Courtroom Battle That uh, Brought Down uh, the Klan. How did that happen? Well, he, in 1987, it finally came to trial. And there were six Klansmen in that courtroom and, and Robert Sheldon. I mean, these didn't care about the, uh, the Klansmen. He didn't care about them. He was cared about breaking the United Klans of America. And again, it was a difficult case to make. I mean, you, you think about it. When you can say whatever you want in this country. You can't, you can't limit our, our, what we can say. But what he's saying is you can't provoke people to violence. And he had to prove there was a pattern of violence. And that, that he did. There was a man, Jim Rowe, who was an FBI informant, who was in the car the day that uh, they shot and murdered Violi Luosa at the time of the Selma March. And... Uh, he had been ordered by, by Shelton to, to do what has to be done. Again, he didn't use the word murder, but everybody knew what that meant. And there was another young man who had, who had been leader of a clan in another town in, in, in Alabama. And he was the leader, and they had uh, shot up the homes of a black man who was trying to get uh, a civil rights leader who was trying to get uh, black people on the police force and the fire department. And they shot up the home of a white woman who was dating, dating a black man. And when the police were afraid that this the civil rights leader was talking to the FBI, they had the plan break into his house and steal his documents. And they were and this man turned against his others, and they were arrested and sentenced to prison. And this this young man then uh, came to court and talked about how Robert Sheldon had bragged about his violence in Birmingham and kind of inspired them to do violent acts. 
Lawrence uh, Lamer is my guest on Progressive Spirit. He's the author of The Lynching, the epic courtroom battle that brought down the Klan. Uh, talking about the Ku Klux Klan a little bit, uh, Portland, Oregon, you'd think it's a liberal place, but I remember just seeing a photo recently of the Klan marching down the street uh, in the 1920s. Uh, definitely uh, a lot of racism in the North as well. Talk about the Klan. Um, in the early 20th century, it, it was a force, powerful and influential. What was it by 1981 and, and, and today? Well, in the 20s, the governor of Indiana was a Klansman. Yeah. And uh, in the 20s, the Klan was, was more anti-Catholic than it was anti-Black. And it was establishment. You were a good establishment figure. I mean, uh, Robert Byrd, Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia, was a, was in was in the Klan. Okay, it was just it was like it was like the Rotary Club in a way, as people thought of it. It wasn't. It was a kind of you know evil Rotary Club, but it was the kind of thing that many people belonged to. By the eighties, it was it. They were more. It was a kind of lower class. Uh, it is law. Mm. You know. Integration was taking place. They, they, they were these kind of lost young men in it, mainly. I mean, there was no, they weren't religious. They didn't belong to unions. They didn't belong to social organizations. The Klan was the one thing that gave them identity. I mean, you, you see a lot of uh, Donald Trump supporters now, a lot of these people. They're the kinds of people that very easily could have been Klansmen. Well, actually, I kind of wanted to go there. Uh, we have a presidential candidate who seems to have tapped in uh, to this white anger, paranoia, and racism. Uh, so the Klan uh, may have been uh, brought down, but uh, racism and racist organizations and attitudes are still prevalent uh, in the United States. Uh, has your book given you any insights into hate groups and how they operate today? Well, it, it, I don't know, but it's, it's in our soul. I mean, when hmm. Barack Obama said that uh, uh, slavery is, the, is our original sin, well, it still goes on. And this, and this election shows this, uh, I mean, uh, what, what Trump said about the, the, the American judge who happened to be a second-generation American from Mexico. I mean, it's absolutely racist. And um, it's scary to me. The other thing scary about it, it's interesting, is that behind racism, there's always anti-Semitism. And in my book, you'll see that Robert Sheldon, the Klan leader, as he gets older, he, start, he talks less about black people and more about Jews, how Jews control the world, how Jews control black people. Black people are kind of innocent and benign and wouldn't stand up and wouldn't work for integration except for the Jews. And it's, it's there, and these things are there. And that's why we have to stand up bold and stop this. We have to stop it now. And, and, of course, so Morris D. is uh, part of that by uh, uh, making this uh, unprecedented argument that the murder was larger than the two lowly Klan members. Um, the case set a precedent for the future. Uh, talk about the significance of this trial uh, for other, other hate groups. Well, in that courtroom, the jury, when the jury came up with a $7 million verdict against the United Klans of America— it was only about a $50,000. All they had is of a building worth $50,000. I lost that. But it psychologically was devastating to the Klan. That was the end of that, the large Klan organization. And from then on, the Southern Poverty Law Center fought a number, it got, fought a number, number of similar lawsuits against large racist groups, including in, in one, a skinhead group in Portland. And, uh, you know, so now you have a lot of these isolated racist individuals, but you don't have the, you don't have the large groups anymore. I wonder if those isolated groups are looking for a larger figure to uh, represent them in some way. And Trump seems to fit that bill for many. 
you know, these, these, these poor, these, these, these people have been taken advantage of by the political system, have been taken advantage from the Democratic Party. They weren't the Democratic Party, the Democrats helped them. They didn't help them. I mean, mm-hmm. with some of the trade policies, the wealthy people got wealthier and they lost their, their, their union jobs in the factories. The factories shut down. They went to the Republican Party. The Republicans were even worse. And now they turned to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump isn't going to save them either. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, Lawrence Labor, uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, he's the author of The Lynching, the epic courtroom battle that brought down the Klan. So uh, after writing this book, if, if you uncovered a number of new things. Uh, for example, we talked a little bit about uh, uh, George Wallace, uh, what you learned uh, about him and, and in regards to uh, his political uh, aspirations and connection with the Klan. Um, anything else? What, what, what was significant for you? Some more significant things that uh, you learned from writing this work? Well, you know, it's interesting to me about Wallace, that Wallace was a very smart guy. And he, early on, he realized that integration was going to come. He knew it. But he thought, if I take this issue and fight this issue, I can use it to politically advance. He could have become the de Klerk of the South, doing, doing what de Klerk and Nelson, Nelson Mandela working together ended apartheid in South Africa. He chose not to do that. He cynically took this issue. And I think... Donald Trump has done the same thing with the issue of uh, the 11 million uh, undocumented immigrants throwing them out and, uh, and not allowing Muslims to come in this country. I think he knows he's not going to do that if he became president. That was that was a way, way to provoke people and to get voters. I think you're right. He's a big uh, entertainer. And uh, that, that, I think, is, is, is correct to make the, the big show, to draw that population. But uh, as far as he has any convictions of his own, I, I, I wonder if he's just an empty suit. The suit better start filling up soon with policies, that's for sure. <laughs> that's right. Lawrence Lamer, my guest, uh, author of an important book called The Lynching, the epic courtroom battle that brought down the Klan. Uh, thank you for this book, and thank you for being with me today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. You can find more information about the show and find links to podcasts at ProgressiveSpirit.net. Progressive Spirit is available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Podomatic, iTunes, and your favorite podcast app. Please like Progressive Spirit on Facebook and follow Progressive Spirit on Twitter and join the conversation. Progressive Spirit is available free to radio stations via the Pacifica Radio Network. It is heard on WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, and KBOO, Portland, Oregon, where it's produced. I'm John Shuck. Be welcome.